right, well, let's go ahead and get started tonight in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 8. You know, um, we've... uh, We've got a lot um, that the Lord talks about with wisdom, and uh, there's a lot that the Lord communicates to us about how important it is in our life, um, the 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 direction that wisdom takes us versus the direction of the world. Um, you know, this morning talking a little bit about what happens when when we follow that pathway and that direction that is of the world. Um, is that of iniquity and sin, it leads us to that conclusion, it leads us to that point of just uh, making an absolute ruin of our lives. And uh, when we think about um, what Solomon is saying here, it's very similar to what we, what, what we were talking about this morning. Uh, when, when sin becomes the primary thought process, when foolishness overrides God's word, uh, there is going to be, uh, if you will, a horror story at the end of it all. Um, and Solomon had faced that. He had come to some conclusions about it. He had come to some realizations about uh, what had happened and what had occurred in his life. Some of the things of sin that he had seen. You know, you go through and, and he says... Uh, uh, in a couple of places, talking about the man that is void of understanding and uh, the conclusions that he sees of that person's life and what it does. Um, we're going to take a look a little bit at that because this is what he begins to talk about in chapter 8. But it has a very interesting uh, uh, way that, that that he approaches it. And it's it, and it's an approach that I really, truly, I look at and I can appreciate because it's approached from an authoritative, law-abiding mentality. And uh, we're going to read that in just a few minutes, but let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the time that we have today, and we thank you again for all that you've done for us. Lord, we cannot uh, thank you enough for the salvation that we have in you. We cannot thank you enough for the forgiveness of sins. We cannot thank you for the restoration that is there and the peace that you give us, the joy, um, and, and just uh, you communicated love to us and what we receive from you on a daily basis. Uh, our, our words would fail us if we were to attempt to do that. But Lord, uh, we are very thankful this, this evening. And Lord, I just pray that as we study your word tonight, that Lord, your Holy Spirit will continue to teach us. Uh, will continue to show us uh, what we need in this life. Uh, we'll continue to guide and direct to what we have from your word about that guidance and um, instruction that we receive, the correction. And I pray, Lord, that we would just receive it tonight, that, Lord, we'd learn something about you, learn something about wisdom, learn something about its importance in our life. Thank you again for all that you've done for us this day. And Lord, I just pray you just continue to bless us uh, by teaching us tonight. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, it starts off with, Who is as the wise man? Who is as the wise man? And who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doth whatsoever pleaseth him. Where the word of the king is, there is power. Who may say unto him, What doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. Not sure if we're going to get past that tonight, but we're going to go ahead and give it a whirl. But what we find here is he starts off by asking two questions. And again, you know, uh, you you go through Scripture and you find that Scripture is littered with questions. Somebody said that there's something over 3,500 or something of that nature questions in the Bible. And when you begin to realize that's a lot of questions that are being asked, you find that God is the one that asks quite a few of them. That it's not man that asks it, but it's God that asks. Jesus Christ, his whole ministry 
was to engage in a, in, if you will, in a probing manner. Not again, again, not because he, he, he was not knowing what was going to happen, but again, to, to really just get us to think. And that's the idea. When, when, when we ask the question, it is meant to bring about some conviction. It's, it's meant where you have something that's an accusation and that simply can just harden the heart. But if a person asks it the right way and asks a question in such a way that it gets the person to think about what is being said, sometimes that's better than just the lesson itself. You go over to, to, to um, to uh, uh, the way that God treated Jonah in the book of Jonah. He gives Jonah a command. He says, you need to go here. The, the, the end of it, the end of the book, you find God having a lot of questions for Jonah. He asks, doest thou well to be angry? He doesn't answer the first time. He asks again, doest thou well to be angry for the gore? Jonah ang- answers, in anger, yes, I do as well to be angry. <coughs> he, he, and then God begins to ask, should I not show mercy to people that need mercy? And that's how he ends the book. I mean, he doesn't even answer his own question. doesn't even wait for the answer. It's just the book ends. Because it's rhetorical in nature, and we know the answer to it. So when we look at here, what's going on here, he, he, he's asking this question, well, who is as the wise man? What, is, what does a wise man look like? What is a wise man in this world? You know, there's a lot of people that profess themselves to be wise. You go over to Romans chapter 1, and it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They thought they knew wisdom, but they don't. How many of you have been watching some of those uh, those images that they've been posting of that new billion-dollar satellite uh, telescope thing that they just launched into the outer space? If you see some of those pictures, it's insane. I mean, not only are they just absolutely breathtaking, but look at the ones that they do in the infrared. You think that you see stars in the first picture? Take away, t- t- take a look at the infrared picture. In the infrared picture, the whole thing just looks like a field of stars. You can see some of the the images of the nebula and so on and so forth. It's there, but you look at it and you're just amazed. You look at the ones where it's just pictures of galaxies. Not even stars, but galaxies themselves that have multiple stars in them, and, 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 and even more than that have multiple planets and all sorts of stuff in it. And you think about all of those things that God created, and it just absolutely, if you will, just takes us back and makes us think to ourselves, well, how in the world could this just all happen by chance? But it doesn't. So those that, that, that look at those things and then think, that, oh, well, this just happened because matter went boom, is, is, I mean, you know, again, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Whereas you look at that, and what does it do? It reveals the handiwork of God. I love those passages where it talks about looking to the heavens and seeing his works. But as we think about this here, he's asking this question, who is as the wise man and who knoweth the interpretation of a thing? He's saying, look, who can sit down and begin to analyze and and really truly say, well, I'm acting in a wise manner. I'm acting in a, in a, in, in, in the appropriate interpretation of scripture and the appropriate interpretation of what God is teaching me. And I'll tell you, interpretation is a thing that, that a lot of people get messed up on. Over there, Peter talks about the scripture is not given to private interpretation. Meaning we don't get to take stuff out of scripture and make it say something that it doesn't. It just doesn't. We can't, we don't get to do that. But trust me, people try all the time. And when they try all the time, guess what happens? They fall. They fail. Because again, you're using something incorrectly. You're using, you're using the wrong building materials. Instead of building with the word of God in the form of edification, they wind up building in pride, and that is just, if you will, just a hollow brick that can't support any weight. And that ego that's puffed up just crashes down. The end thing that we wind up seeing here with this is that we see that God is asking that question to us, you know, really trying to get us, do we act like a wise man? Would we even know what a wise man looks like when that happens? 
If we look at ourselves in the mirror, would we say that we were being wise? Not again to lift ourselves up in pride and say, oh yeah, I'm so wise, look at me. Not that type of mentality. But to look at it in such a way that we would say, hey, I notice there's something different. Look at, look at verse 1 here. He says, who is a wise man who so, and who knoweth the interpretation of the thing? It says, a man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the boldness of his face shall be changed. There is something that takes place in that person's life that actually begins to affect their countenance. We, look, we, we, we get caught in situations all the time, and sometimes we wind up with a surprised countenance, sometimes we wind up with an angry countenance, sometimes we wind up with various different things. The Bible talks a lot about it. It says when you've got somebody that's a talebearer or gossiper, somebody of that nature, you know what drives that person away? An angry countenance. Somebody comes up to you, but if you're that person, you know, that sits there and wants to hear that and you want to, to hear all of those things, you're going to have that look of going like, ooh, like you're about ready to hear something good. But if somebody says, well, hey, you want to hear something about such and such, you know, and somebody turns and looks at that person and goes, no, and has a scowl, more than likely that person is going to get an impression that you don't want to hear it. God, Look, God gave us a face for a reason. He didn't give us a face so that we could learn to play, play poker, okay? Uh, he didn't give us a face so that we can learn to bluff our way out of things. He gave us a face for a key purpose of of, of revealing things to us that affect us. Even in the spiritual sense. Because what's happening here is this man that has this wisdom, it is actually causing his face to shine. Now look, I'm not talking about that nice warm glow that you get when you wake up in the morning and you got a nice oil slick on there. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about, you know, the end of the day after, you know, you're trying to scrape that stuff off. I'm not talking about something of like that. I'm talking about the true light of the word of God coming through a person. I have personally seen that where somebody that did not have the light of scripture and I saw fear and, and just frustration and just complete total anger. And then I see them turn around and something happens and there's a little bit of, if you will, a twinkle in the eye. And then when they began to grasp scriptural principles, something changes dramatically. They're not the person that they were before. Why? Because that's the power of the Word of God. It changes. It can take somebody that is meek and mild and and doesn't want to say a thing and can make that person bold for the cause of Christ. And he says it right here. He says, look, you know, talking about this, he says, uh, the boldness of his face shall be changed. How that affects that person and it moves away from, from, from those things of, of just, you know, again, being hard and being, uh, uh, if you will, brash to being soft and it also being caring and communicating that with the face. I mean, again, let's say here you are, you're going out and you, you have somebody that, that asks you a question and they ask you, oh, you're a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. And that person says, well, can you, can you tell me, uh, what, what, what that means? And if that person is sitting there with that, that countenance of the, the inquiry, they really want to know, and you turn and you look at them and you get this scowl on your face and just say, you're an awful sinner. You're going to die and go to hell. You'd be like, okay. Well, that may be truth. But what did your countenance communicate? Whereas if you tell somebody, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin because your sin was going to send you to a devil's hell. And he loved you so much that he died on that cross and shed his blood for your sins so you could have forgiveness of sins and you could have a relationship with him. Totally different response. Now, again, the Bible talks about how a soft answer turneth away wrath. And we, what we see here is we see this individual, this wise man, there is something that can be seen about them. You ever meet that person that you look at and immediately you just write off as arrogant and prideful? 
because of their demeanor and their swagger. And you're just like, and, and anything they say, what do you, you, you just, it's in one ear and right out the other. Why? Because you don't want to listen to that. I mean, we have to deal with that from our own selves all the time. So why, why would we want to deal with it from anyone else? So when we look at this, we see that there's a real change that comes because of real wisdom. Not something that is, 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 is fake in its nature. He's been talking about wisdom this whole time and walking through, and it brings about, if you will, this confidence in God. This, it brings about this, this, uh, uh, this light of the Word of God shining forth. And we see that there's something that changes, and here he begins to go in and he starts talking about what this person that is wise and knows how to interpret this correctly looks like. And I'm not talking about the physical form, I'm talking about their actions, and their heart process. So let's take a look at the verse 2 here. And Solomon begins to uh, uh, appear with saying, kind of some people take as a dissertation about uh, being subject to authorities. Now Paul covered that and so did Peter and, and even Jesus Christ talking about being subject unto authorities that are over us. Uh, a lot of times people don't like that because we don't always agree with the authorities that are over us. Well, as long as they're not asking us to do something that is sinful... Well, we still have to follow what they tell us to do. That's a scriptural principle. I'm sure Caesar was not probably the, the best judge of character, or excuse me, the best judge of laws, when some of those laws were being implemented. Whether it was the Senate or whether it was Caesar putting them in place, it didn't matter. But the fact is, is that there were some laws that were probably more favorable to false gods than there were to Christians. And we know that because we see the Christians being persecuted. In, in numbers. But what we find here is, is not that case. This isn't talking about authority that's over us in the flesh. Because when you read through that in the first five verses here, did you notice that there was something very distinct? There was something very specific about it. There was a specific king that was being referenced. And that specific king that was being referenced, uh, th- th- there was a, a specific authority that he's referencing with that king. Look at this. In the very first part in chapter 2, he says, I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. And he puts these two things together for a reason. Now, many times people will say that they're a Christian, but they do not follow through with their oaths, with their vows. Now, we found, uh, obviously, from the first part of the book of Ecclesiastes, God takes vows very seriously. And it's better not to vow if you intend on not keeping it. And now, that doesn't mean that you just say, well, I'm not going to vow. Let's not be Ahaz and say, I'm not going to tempt God, because, (laughs) you know, I don't want to enter into asking for a sign. I get the sign, and then now I've got to follow it, and I know that I full well I'm not going to. I mean, that's the heart of Ahaz. But what we find here, very specifically, is we find that these two things being tied together. Now, the king's commandment is very important. Now, he just had identified that he himself was an old foolish king. He had previously identified the fact that he has lost some respect and some authority. But this is not the type of king that he's talking about in a physical sense. This is a king that very clearly is in line with the things of God. Keeping this king's commandments is as close to making that vow to God as we're going to get. And I tell you, we sometimes need to make sure that we do that. How many times has it been that we have promised God that we're going to do something for him and it's following his commandment if he helps us in a certain way? Part of our pleadings and part of what we're looking for and part of what we do and we think the surrendering process is about that. You know how many altar confessions I've heard where a person drops down to their knees and they're begging for sin to be relieved and they they quote unquote surrender their life to God and I'll be a missionary, I'll be a pastor, I'll be whatever you want me to be, Lord, just help this thing to pass. God doesn't take that lightly, by the way. And the thing passes and then God says, all right, now it's come, now comes time to make that fulfilled or that, that, that vow that you made. Now comes time to bring that about. 
Well, you know, Lord, I wasn't really talking about... No, no. God's serious about that. God's serious about it. When, when, when God's talking about this commandment here, he's talking about the commandments of the Word of God. Well, how do we know that? Because it's right in line with chapter 12 and the end verses. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the authority he's talking about. He's talking about God here. He's talking about the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's talking about the one true king. He understands that this isn't about his authority. He's not sitting there saying, you got to keep my commandments because it's as close to God as possible. No, he's not saying that. He's saying what is important is the real king and his commandments. He understands the position that he's in was given to him by God. It wasn't given to him by anyone else. And with that position and with that understanding, he realized that his authority is limited as much as God allows. But he himself, being a king, has to obey a king's command. And that is God himself. That is God himself. Take a look at what we see here in verse 3. He says, Be hasty not to go out of his sight, stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Now again, this is not a situation where we're talking about the things, uh, if you will, of of the, uh, the, the, the ruler in place of the world. He's talking about God. Take a look at this here. He says, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Remember, the whole principle behind the book of Ecclesiastes is to compare what the world view is with what God says is true. And without God, everything is vain. Everything's vanity. If we do it without him, it's a futile attempt. We're trying it in our own flesh, we're trying it in our own power, we're trying it in our own strength, and we realize that we're weak, we have no power, we have no authority, we have no ability to do things. But it's God that provides that. His grace is sufficient for us. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. So we allow him to work in us to strengthen us. This morning, Ahaz, he was not strengthened. Why? Because he sought the wrong kind of help. If he had gone to the Lord and he said, Lord, I'm going to repent and I'm going to take all these things down and I'm going to burn these idols, just like his his predecessor uh, was going to do, or excuse me, his successor was going to do, Hezekiah. Hezekiah comes in after Ahaz and what does he do? He does a wholesale purge of the land. He goes through and he starts burning everything, grinding it up and dumping it in the brook Kidron. Why do they dump it in the brook Kidron? Everything you go through, it's always in the brook Kidron. People were being slaughtered, you know, the prophets of Baal, brook Kidron. Man, that brook is like, wow, that's, that, I wouldn't drink of that water because who knows what's in it. But at some point in time, you realize that he decided to make a wholesale purge and get rid of that. If Asa has done that, God would have come along and strengthened him. He would have routed the Assyrians. He would have routed those that were against him. But he didn't. And because he didn't, he allowed the enemies to increase. The end result that we see here is that we see in, in, in verse 3, he says, be hasty not to go out of his sight. It means don't, don't, don't be in such a rush to leave God behind. Don't be in such a rush to get out. You know, sometimes there, there are individuals that, that, that they, they want nothing to do with God. You bring up the subject of God and they can't get out of the room or the, the building or wherever it is fast enough. Uh, I, I'll never forget Mike Perry was telling me a story, uh, how he picked up a hitchhiker and he was driving along and, and, uh, Mike Perry starts talking to him about God. And here he is, you know, he just picked up this hitchhiker and he's like, well, if you were to die today, you know, that type of, that, you know, questioning that goes on. And the hitchhiker's like, you know, you can just pull over right here. This is good enough. <laughs> he didn't want to hear. You couldn't get out of the car fast enough. He couldn't get out of the car fast enough. Why? Because the subject of God brought, got brought up. And, and, and Solomon's realizing that he became a little hasty in what he did, and he left the presence of God. 
Well, how did he do that? He went about trying to strengthen the country of his own uh, own accord, making alliances and and uh, marrying these women and and allowing them to bring in these other gods. And he thought it would strengthen the country, and it brought the country to a very precarious place. It brought Solomon to the end of himself. And here we are seeing him do that, and he says, you know, be not hasty to go out of his sight. Don't leave the sight of God. Why? Because you're out of his will. And I've said this time and time again, you know, under the umbrella of God's will, there's a lot of liberty. There's a lot of liberty. But the minute that we remove ourselves from that covering, the minute that we remove ourselves from that circle, is the minute that we remove ourselves from the protection of God. You know, when we were young, when we had children and they were younger, we would say, stay in, you know, stay where I can see you, right? Stay, stay where I can see you. Why? Because we wanted to know where our children were. We were, you know, uh, um, uh, given the, the, the responsibility of keeping them safe. And we always wanted to make sure that wherever they were, that they were safe. They were safe. Stay in the yard where I can see you. Don't go out here. Don't go there. So we were teaching the children. And here he's saying, look, don't be in such a rush that you're just trying to get out of the sight of God because you're moving outside of his protection. You're moving outside of his provision. You're moving outside of his will. And you're moving into an area that is an area of sin. It's filled with traps and snares and everything else. We move off that path is when we have a problem. I'll never forget the one time that, uh, that I was, uh, uh, came here on a Saturday to pray. Um, and I was waiting for Pastor Shanks and Pastor Shanks never showed up. And I was like, okay, that's weird. Usually he calls me and lets me know or something. So I just went home and then I got a call later on and he explained what happened. He was out hiking. And, uh, uh, Maddie went on a little bit too far ahead with the dog and she got lost. And they spent the whole time going out there searching. And it was only by the grace of God that they were able to find her that, that, that Matt, he led Matthew Farnell to go find her up a certain path and they met together and then everything was fine and everything was safe. But once she got too far up ahead and she was off the path and she went on to a wrong path, she was no longer around her father. And there's a great principle behind that. There's a great principle behind that. Sometimes we're so far, you know, we're, we're, we're so, uh, you know, wanting to do something that we want to do that we run so far ahead of God. And other times we're so far behind God that he's having to drag us. But what it looks like here, as we see, he's saying, look, you know, I I can testify that going outside of his will, going outside of his sight is not going to be a good thing for us. Be not hasty to go out of his sight. And he says, stand not in an evil thing. And if you notice, this is exactly the, the, the product of moving out of his sight. When we move out of his sight, where do we find ourselves standing? In an evil thing. Turn over to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. A passage with which we should be familiar. But Psalm chapter 1 says here, Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And we see the progression that's here. A person that is removing themselves from the sight of God is walking away from them, but at some point in time, they stop walking away and they start standing in the wrong place. So here's an individual that's walking with the counsel of the ungodly. They're receiving ungodly counsel. The next thing you know is instead of walking, they're now standing still. And when they're standing still, they're standing still in the presence of sinners, allowing the sinners to affect them. And eventually it grows to a, a, a comfortability and they wound up sitting down together. And then they become scorners. 
The things of God they no longer look at as important and they scorn the things of God. They scorn his provision. They scorn his word. They scorn his commandments. They scorn all of it. But here he says, standing in the way of sinners. He's walked into a path now where that pathway is filled with sinners and he's standing in there amongst the lot of them. And then finally, at the end of that path is he winds up at the house of the scorner and he sits down with him. In fellowship. Not in fellowship with God, but somewhere else. And he says, stand on an evil thing. Stand on an evil thing. <clears throat> and, and, and we see here that this is the, the, the end result of when we do walk outside of God. We're bringing harm in. Harm to ourselves, harm to others. Harm upon our, uh, upon our life and, and, and the things that are there. But, but, but here's the, the, the interesting part about this first, uh, first, uh, a few phrases of this verse is he's saying, look, don't forsake the king by, by committing sin. Don't forsake the king by, 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 by going for the things that are evil in this life. Don't forsake the king in that way because here, here, here's the issue. Here's the caution. Here's the proverb. Here's the warning. God does whatsoever it pleases him. God does whatsoever it pleases him. And the Bible says that he, 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 he you know, when he, he loves those whom he cracks. Correction is a loving thing. When correction's done the right way, it's a loving thing. That process I was talking about this morning, that's a loving thing from God. It's not to be looked at in any other way. It's his love towards us. When we realize what he's talking about here, we realize that he's going to do whatever pleases him, and it pleases him to ensure his children are walking where they need to be. And if not, correcting them when they need to be. And at certain times, there are those that he has to remove. God is going to God is going to do what God does and what pleases Him. It's not going to be what pleases us. Removing ourselves from the sight uh, from His sight, removing ourselves uh, uh, and to stand in an evil thing, God's going to do what pleases Him, and He's always going to do the right thing. And here's the problem. Sometimes we think the right thing is what's best for us. But that's not always the right thing, is it? We don't like to be corrected. We don't like to be rebuked. We don't like somebody telling us where we've failed and where we've done wrong. We just simply don't. It's in our fleshly nature, if you will, that desire that we have to please ourselves to say, I don't want to listen to what you have to say. I don't want to listen to what you have to say. And there's so many times I, I, I've seen it happen. I've seen so many times various different people, that, you know, you, you try to teach them the right way to do something, and they're like, no, I'm just going to do it my way. But it's so much more work, and it's not going to necessarily yield the same results. And, and even if you you have good results with it, think about how the results could be so much better if you just simply did what the right thing to do was. But they don't want to listen. And what we find with this passage is he says here, God's going to do whatever pleases him. And we see here that God talk throughout the, the, this book, he talks about things about being punished. He talks about the things about God uh, doing what he does with vanity and, and, and the things of pride. <clears throat> you go down here to, to verse 11, and I know I'm over, you know, kind of shooting over a few verses here, but I want to point this out. It says, because the sentence in verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work uh, is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Sometimes when people delay what is necessary for that corrective act, and, and if you will, those sentences, it, it prompts them to do it more and more and more. So what does God do? God comes about and he does those things that he needs to do when he needs to do them to correct a person. That becomes of vital importance. Becomes of vital importance. 
This is the warning that he gives us. What do we find here in, in, in verse 4 is we take a look a little bit further. He says, where the word of the, of the king is, there is power. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, that's, uh, that's the word of the king of the King James Bible. Uh, no, look, let's, let's be honest here. King James had only as much power as God gave him. And King James didn't do everything right because he wasn't God. He made mistakes just like the rest of us. But again, be careful about the biographies you read about King James because most of them are corrupted because of one individual that wrote a horrible biography about him afterwards, calling him from everything from a homosexual to all sorts of things and just disparaged him. Uh, it's not who he was. It's not who he was. Uh, and I'm not saying that just because he came from the house of Stuart. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm not defending my clansmen, all right? And I want you to understand that. But, 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 but one thing is, is very apparent here. This isn't talking about that king. This is talking about the power of the word of God. The power of the word of God. Where the word of a king is. I want you to think about the word of God for a second and what power that holds. As a spoken word, he created. The spoken word he created. Want to see power? Go over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here God has John write this down because here he is portraying Jesus Christ as God. And it says in John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it says the same as it was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I think he just made that very clear. That the word of God has creative ability. Well, who is the word of God? Because he's personifying that here. That's Jesus Christ. His name is the word. His name is the word. And it becomes even more important as we go back down here through the, the rest of part, the rest of this, where he starts talking about who has the power to uh, of death or to retain their own spirit. Jesus Christ did. God raised him from the dead. He gave up the ghost. I mean, you know, it becomes very apparent though the power that he had that brought about an amazing victory over sin and over death. But he says, as you go down through this, it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and darkness comprehended it not. And you go down through all of these things about what what, what it says here, and uh, um, and it says in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of truth, or full of grace and truth. And here he is talking about this, as who it is and, 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 and what power he has, because he mentions that here in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You know what else is very important about the power of God, the power of his word, is salvation. Who other's word provides salvation? There is none. The prophet Muhammad cannot provide salvation. As a matter of fact, in the Quran, he writes about how uh, that uh, according to what he wrote, what Muhammad wrote, said that Allah said that all Muslims need to go to hell to purge their sins. And he describes what happens when they go to hell. They come out twisted and, and uh, yellow in color like sulfur. And that's how they live the rest of their life in paradise. Well, that doesn't sound like paradise to me at all. You can keep all five tenets of Islam, and he says very clearly that Allah is not obligated to, to, to do anything to send you to paradise. You can martyr yourself. Still not obligated to send you to paradise. Because it's all Allah's whim. It's all Allah's decision. 
Well, Allah's not God. And the end result of what we find is we find that there's no power of salvation in anything Allah ever said. There's no, there's no power of salvation in anything Buddha ever said. Buddha would talk about all these things about how to dwell in peace and have peace in your life and become one with the universe and all these things and so on and so forth. But you'll find, uh, uh, just as much as the, 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 the cultures that have been dominated by Islam, the cultures that have been dominated by Buddhism are just as violent. Because the honesty about it is, is that when the truth is suppressed and lie is put forward, people become violent. Hmm. That's interesting to think about. But when we start thinking about what Buddha said, Buddha said that it's not about, uh, uh, if you will, salvation. It's about becoming nothing. The end of the Buddhist life is when you reach nirvana. Nirvana is when you go into nothingness and you become one with the universe and your particles become particles of the universe. So we are all particles of people that have reached nirvana at some point in time. You. They preach any of that? Salvation? There's no salvation from sin. There's no salvation from the punishment of sin. There's none of that. Where else are we going to find salvation in this world? Save the name of Jesus Christ. And the name of Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Where are we going to find power to become the sons of God? Even those that believe on His name. We find that there's power with that word. This is the king that he's referencing. We're not talking a physical king here. Back over there in in, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, and verse 4, it says, Where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, What doest thou? Go over to the book of Job. Job's not too far away. Keep your place there. And in uh, Job... uh, um, Job goes through, you know, listening to various different people. Listens to his three friends. He has a lot to debate with them. Uh, his friend Elihu <coughs> begins to talk to him and uh, speak to him about certain things. And he wraps up what he says uh, in verse 37. But if you go to chapter, chapter 37, but if you go to chapter 38, you find God enters into the conversation. God enters into the conversation. <clears throat> And what do we find here in verse 1 of Job chapter 38? Then God answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, who laid the cornerstone thereof, and when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the sea with the doors, when it breaketh forth as it had been issued out of the womb? When I made the cloud, the thick garment thereof, and the, the, the thick darkness, and a swaddling band for it, and the break up for it, uh, my decreed place, and set bars and doors, and said, Hitherto shalt thou come, but no further. And here shall thy proud waves be stayed. He's like, do you have that ability, Job? And you're going to demand of me an answer as to why you're going through what you're going through? It's not, it's not wrong to ask God questions. It's not wrong to, to ask him. Lord, I don't understand. What are we doing here? What are you doing? Help me understand. There's no problem with asking that. But when we begin demanding an answer, when we demand in such a way of saying, what doest thou as an authority, we have stepped over a very dangerous line. A very dangerous line. We do that sometimes with our dogs. 
Daisy's the worst. She likes couches. She's not content on her bed. She likes to sit on the couch where we've been and cuddle up in our blankets and so on and so forth. She, she's a pack dog. She'll follow Amy around the whole house waiting for her to drop her hand so she can shove her hand up underneath there to get a free pet. That's how, that's how, that's how desperate she is. I mean, she, she, she's, she's got an attention problem, man. But you know, sometimes you, it's like most Christians, right? (laughs) Um, and and, and sometimes, you know, you you just, there's been a case where, where she thought everyone was out of the house and one of us was still there. And she goes up and she was sitting on the couch one time and I remember walking down the stairs and Everyone else was gone. She thought everybody was in the, she thought she was in the free and clear. And she won't do it when we're around. She's got to do it when we're gone. And then when we come home, she, you can hear her just kind of slide off the leather couch and then come walking up like she just woke up. I remember walking down one time and I just remember just standing over the couch and just looking over the couch at her. And she's just, and I'm like, what are you doing? And you see this dog just go, like, oh no. <laughs> and it used to be that you would just say, get off, and she would get, hurry off. Now I say, get off, and she just kind of looks at me, moves one paw. Like, did you really mean it? I'm like, get off. And she's like, Ugh. and then she kind of slides off and stretches in the middle of it. You know, you surprise her. Like, what are you doing? We don't get to do that with, do- with, with God. We don't get to do that with God. We don't get to ask him, what are you doing? Questioning his authority, questioning who he is. Now look, many times we would do that with our authorities. They're over us. Many times there are individuals that we want to ask that question of, that are authorities over us. Like seriously, what are you doing? Because that doesn't make any sense. Because I have absolutely no idea what you just said, because it didn't make any sense. But we ask questions. But we don't get to ask that of God. Could you imagine Nathan having to go and point his finger at at David and say, thou art the man? You know, he had to have a lot of confidence in God. Why? Because generally when they do stuff like that, you know, the rest of the part of the book of Kings, you go over there and you find it didn't work out too well for him. Thrown in prison, getting, you know, murdered and executed and all sorts of stuff. But here's the situation where, where this, this is, this is not the king that's in place of the physical realm. This is the king of kings. Are we going to ask God, what are you doing? To question his authority? We can't do that. Why? Because he created us. He provided us with salvation. There's a lot of honor that is due to him. There is a lot of reverence that is due to him. There is a lot of glory that is due to him. And to begin to question what God's doing in such a way that is if we know better or we think it's unfair on our part is to enter into a very dangerous territory. Very much so, if you will, to stand in an evil way, in an evil thing. And here's where we see in verse 5, where he really goes into this process of alluding that this is really not a physical king. Because he says in verse 5, back over there in Ecclesiastes, Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. So here he is, he makes it very clear that if somebody keeps the commandment, they're not going to feel any evil thing. Now, look, sometimes we can keep the commandments and the laws of man, and we still experience evil things. It's happened. There have been people that are innocent that have gone through that whole process. I get it. I understand. 
But when we think about this here, this evil thing that we're talking about is we're talking about death, hell, a lake of fire. You know, when when we realize that this keeping of these commandments, that it leads us, you know, away from those evil things, the Bible makes it clear. The Bible says, and, and, and some people, now look, I'm not saying if you keep the commandments, you're going to get salvation, okay? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form. Ecclesiastes, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 makes that evident. But there is one thing that is very clear. God said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? We would look at those things, and those are commandments. And as a matter of fact, it clearly states that we are supposed to obey the gospel, is what it says. So there's an obedience part to it. Again, that's not obedience for us on the salvation. God does the saving, all right? Again, let's just make that very clear here. But when a person obeys what God tells us to do, we're going to find that there's an amount of life that is compensatory to the commandments that we're following. The whole, the whole chapter of Proverbs chapter 8 talks about how, 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 uh, how wisdom brings life to a person. And one thing that we find with this passage as we go through this, because he mentions right there in the next verse, or excuse me, the next phrase of the verse, uh, talking about a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment, the, the concept is, is here he is, he's asking who is as a wise man, and then he kind of closes in here in verse 5 to a degree, talking about who a wise man is, and to summarize what everything he's just said here, to answer the, that question, who is as a wise man, that's a person that fears God and keeps his commandments. And doesn't that sound familiar as what we read over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13? Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God's going to judge. He's going to bring every secret thing into to, 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 to light. All of these things. And, and, and you know what makes a person wise? is somebody that keeps God's commandments. When you begin to realize it's not some special fairy thing that comes from heaven that God's going to give us and like you're going to get sprinkled with a little bit of fairy uh, wisdom dust and all of a sudden you're going to have the wisdom of Solomon. No, it comes from knowing his word. This book here is wisdom. The The more we know about what God says to us, the more that we're going to know what God's wisdom is. The more that we follow what this book says, the more we're going to experience what wisdom is in our life. How to interpret the things that have happened to us and occur in this life in light of wisdom and using wisdom in the correct interpretation of those events, using it from the the perspective of, Lord, something has happened in my life. I need to seek your wisdom from your word. And we seek the wisdom from God, not from man. And the end result here is he says it's a matter of the heart discerning both time and judgment. Both time and judgment. You know what that means? It means that the wise man exercises judgment in a way that he chooses to say, it is better, I'm going to judge it better to follow God than to follow myself. Hasn't he said over and over again throughout this book, better is this and better is that? And the things that were better were always the things that were found of God? But here he's saying it's also a matter of time. We've got a limited amount of time here on this earth. How much of that time do we spend following his commandments? How much time do we spend knowing the interpretation of his commandments? How much time do we spend going through that? I want you to take a look at verse 6. We're not going to get too far into this. But here he gives a reason. How he's come to this conclusion. And here's why he comes to this conclusion in verse 6. He says, because to every purpose there is time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him. 
This morning I talked about a title of the sermon, if you will, essentially how to ruin your life. We saw that Ahaz did a pretty good job at that. He, he, he fragged his life 16 ways to Sunday. And in the end, he didn't even get buried with the kings. He was just treated as some other guy that died. And that's sad. And he talks about this misery here, and when a person doesn't exercise judgment, doesn't discern the time, misery comes about. We find that that's one of the key differences. The the man that is wise, what is it? His face shines and he has boldness of his face shall be changed. We, We see that there's something different about him. There's something that's, if you will, a light that is existing in that person. Whereas those that choose the foolishness, they bring darkness upon themselves. They bring their own difficulties. The way of the transgressor is hard. Why? Because they make it hard. They choose to make it hard. Doing what's right is not hard. Doing what is evil is hard. Because the end result is is going to be much harder with those consequences. As they begin to multiply. But when we think about this passage, he says, because every purpose. Every purpose. And he's already talked about this. What is the purpose of our life? Everything that we do should have purpose. Everything we do should have direction. Everything that we do should have a very valid reason. You ever try to correct a child and they do something and you look at them and you go, why did you do that? I'm sure Craig could probably tell us that he got this even when, when he was talking with individuals out there. I don't know. You're like, you just did something really stupid. Why did you do that? And they're like, I don't know. Like, seriously, you gotta have a reason. What was going through your mind? I don't know. It's like they have no purpose. But everything that we do has a purpose. And that purpose is God. Does it bring him glory, honor, and pleasure? Is it, is it demonstrating that we fear him and that we want to keep his commandments? Knowing that we're going to stand in front of God one day and have to give an account. And this is that king that he's talking about that we have to stand and give an account to. When we're standing in front of God, we're not going to get an opportunity to say, God, uh, you know what? I, I really, I see what you're putting over there on that player over there, but I can tell you this. I didn't understand a thing of what you were doing over here. So God, that's really your fault. Yeah, those words are not coming out of your mouth. You're going to be sitting there in horror trying to figure out how to disconnect the DVD player is what's going to happen. But you're going to realize it's not powered by a DVD player. It's it's going to be, it's going to be, it can be a, a, a tragic thing. And praise God, God's going to look at it and he's going to say, That person right there, their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They are in my kingdom. They are in eternal life. But when we look at what's going on here, he says it's because of the purpose. How do we purpose what we're doing? And he starts going into this in more detail because, again, we have to realize that when we purpose things, we're not always going to know the future. We don't have the power of our own bodies. We don't have the power over our own selves. We don't have power in such a way. But what we find is is that God does. And God is the one that's directing paths. Next week we'll find out more about this, more about this purpose that's in our life. And this is one of the shorter chapters, and we're going to get through it really quickly here. But there's some great things to, 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 to really think about this. Because in verse 8, he says, There is no man that hath power over the, uh, over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war, neither shall wickedness deliver those that are given to it. And he begins to make some very, if you will, 
I don't want to say cryptic sayings, but very dark sayings like we find in the book of Proverbs that we have to look into those statements and really analyze what is he saying here. We don't have the power of our own bodies. What makes us think that we could get out of it because we've committed wickedness in our life? Judgment is coming. And we'll find out more about that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for all that you've done for us. I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to keep us in your word. And, Lord, that we would continue to just endeavor to please you and follow you with all that is said and done in our lives. The thoughts and the intents of our heart, Lord, that would be judged by the holy word of your scripture. Lord, it would clearly reveal what is the difference between our will and yours. The leading of the Spirit and the leading of us, Lord, where we think we know what is best. But Lord, we know truly that you are the one that leads us and guides us into the paths of righteousness and to your life that you have given to us. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that and we would keep that true in our lives on a day-to-day basis throughout this week. Thank you again for all that you've done for us. Please take us home safely tonight. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.